together, we're seeking to grow. As I mentioned with the children, and as I mentioned at the beginning of the service, looking at the fruit of the Spirit, noticing the way that God is making us holy, more like Christ, by planting His Spirit within. What does godliness look like? Uh, well, that's described in Galatians 5, 23 where the Apostle Paul writes, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Today we'll be looking at joy. But before we open God's Word, I want to put on the screen, uh, you can go to the next slide, Hetty. Um, I, just, I, I said these to the children, and I, I share them with you now. Uh, this is sort of our framework for understanding growth uh, in the Holy Spirit's power. When the Spirit gets implanted within, growth will happen gradually. Growth is gradual. Growth is inevitable. The Holy Spirit is making us holy. That's one of the Spirit's jobs. And then third, Christian growth in holiness is embedded in a life-giving ecosystem. No, grant, uh, no plant can grow on its own. It can't grow without the sun, can't grow without soil or water. And so it is with us. Our growth is connected to uh, us receiving from God, from being nourished in his word in the community of faith, and to be tended and pruned by Christ himself. So that's where we've been, and this is what we're talking about, and today we will be looking at joy. And our passage today is John 16, beginning at verse 17. Actually, yeah, we'll begin at verse 16. Hear the word of the Lord. In a little while you will see me no more. This is Jesus talking to his his disciples. And then, after a little while, you will see me. Some of his disciples said to one another, what does he mean by saying, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? And because I am going to the Father, that's another thing that Jesus was saying, they kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, so he said to them, Are you asking one another what I meant when I said, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after that, a little, and then after a little while you will see me? I tell you the truth. You will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman, a woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Dear friends of Jesus Christ, Probably the one, uh, one of the most iconic characters in English literature is Gandalf, the great wizard in J.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. Gandalf is wise and upright. He's so good. He leads decisively, but he doesn't smother those around him. 
He gets angry, but he always gets angry for the right reasons and in the right proportion. He carries the weight of the world on his shoulders, and yet he knows how to enjoy a good meal and share a hearty laugh. There's a powerful little moment in The Return of the King that takes us deep into Gandalf's inner life. Gandalf is with Pippin at this time, and if you know anything about Pippin, you'll know that he's a mischievous little hobbit that's always getting in trouble. So after a particularly difficult moment, Pippin looks at Gandalf and asks this. He says, are you angry with me, Gandalf? I did the best I could. You did indeed, said Gandalf, laughing suddenly. And he came and stood beside Pippin, putting his arm about the hobbit's shoulders and gazing out the window. Pippin glanced in some wonder at the face now close beside his own, for the sound of that laugh had been gay and merry. Yet in the wizard's face he saw at first only lines of care and sorrow, though as he looked more intently he perceived that under all there was a great joy, a fountain of mirth enough to set a kingdom laughing were it to gush forth. Under the lines of sorrow, there was a great joy, a fountain of mirth. I had to look that word up. I didn't know what that meant. It just means so just this robust gladness. Gandalf knew that the fate of Middle-earth was on the line, that the battle, you know, the victory was not sure to be won. There was a lot of tension at this moment in the story and yet there still was within him a joy deep enough and wide enough to set a kingdom laughing were it to gush forth joy i want to have joy like that a power within that keeps me walking and skipping lightly even as i walk through the darkest of valleys joy. What is joy? How does it differ from happiness? And what is the joy that Jesus gives to his disciples that cannot be taken away? Tim Keller says that joy is a buoyancy of soul. It's a power within us that keeps us up, that keeps us afloat. Like a beach ball in troubled waters, joy allows Uh, Joy allows us to keep our head above the waves. And even when the ball is pushed under by by force or circumstance, still it resurfaces and sometimes even does so in this playful, joyful way. Joy is buoyancy of soul, a deep well of gladness that keeps us up. Happiness is one of joy's relatives, And when happiness and joy get together, they can create some of the best days of our lives. But happiness and joy are not synonymous. Joy is expressed outwardly in maybe laughs or thanksgiving, but fundamentally it's internal. It's a buoyancy within. While happiness, on the other hand, though experienced internally, is more based on external factors. If joy is buoyancy of soul, then happiness is like a pleasant spring breeze that arises when conditions are favorable. A woman in labor is not happy. 
But though caught up in currents and pushed down by waves of contractions, still there's a buoyancy within her in the labor. There's a deep well of gladness. That joy is fueled by hope, and that hope gives way to elation when the baby is born. Joy. I have known a number of non-believers who exhibit joy. They are generally optimistic, glasses half-full kind of people, and because of this, they just are naturally buoyant. They go about their days just kind of pleasant and glad, and that's wonderful. Um, I admire them, but I know that I personally can't be them, not naturally anyway, anyway. And sometimes I wonder, what will come of their joy, people who are naturally optimistic, uh, when it is put through the ringer of life? One of the funeral homes in Allison um, likes to put motivational messages on their digital sign. And I find this kind of funny in um, maybe a dark sort of way. But one of the messages says, believe in yourself. And another says, Self-love is the best kind of medicine. I suppose motivational messages like this, they might have a place, could be helpful for people sometimes, but I find it a little strange that it's at a funeral home. How useful is self-love when we're faced with loss or in believing in yourself for that matter? What I'm trying to say is that even the most optimistic of people eventually, eventually have trouble remaining buoyant naturally. Life has a way of shooting down any buoyancy we might possess. I wonder, is there a joy we can possess that is strong enough to endure the heat of day and the dark of night? And can that joy be a buoyant force within, even as the lines of sorrow grow deep on our face? Yes, says Jesus, but it won't be found naturally within us. It is, rather, the fruit of the gospel planted in us and inflated by the Holy Spirit. The disciples were sure not feeling the joy of the Lord as they listened to Jesus give his farewell speech. They had hoped that Jesus would stay. They had hoped that he wouldn't go away. They had hoped that God's kingdom would be established by their rabbi, the rabbi they had left everything to follow. But now Jesus is talking about this going away business, going away in a little while and then coming back in a little while and what does all this mean? What is Jesus talking about this in a little while business? You can sense the confusion in the disciples, and Jesus senses it too, and he speaks to their troubled hearts. He starts with the hard news of the hard times that are on the horizon. He says, very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. Jesus is referring to his upcoming crucifixion. The religious leaders will rejoice in getting Jesus out of their hair. The riled up crowds will let out a shout of joy when Jesus is lifted up on the cross. But his disciples, this is going to be troubling time. They're going to weep. They're going to mourn. They're going to hide out in a room and lock the door because they're afraid 
of that the authorities might be coming after them next. You will grieve, says Jesus. He's continuing. But, here's the important turning point here, but your grief will turn to joy. And then he concludes, and no one will take away your joy. As it is with a woman in labor, so it will be with you, says Jesus. The labor pains of the cross will be transformed into the joy of new birth on Easter morning. The searing pain of securing our forgiveness will give way to new birth and to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You will grieve. There will be mourning, but that grief will be transformed into joy. I'm going away for a little while, three days. When you see me again, you will be filled with joy and no one will be able to take it away. When the angels introduce Jesus in the book of Luke, they tell the shepherds, I bring you good news that will bring great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born. The gospel itself is this good news, this message that produces in us great joy. The cross and the resurrection, when applied to our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit, that has the power to buoy us up, to lift us up, to make us unshakable. Oh, the good news. And I love this line in um, the hymn, uh, When Peace Like a River. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. I can say it is well with my soul. The joy of knowing Christ's forgiveness, total, not in part, the whole. And oh, the joy of knowing the victory of Christ's resurrection and that now, as we sing in Christ alone, that great hymn, that now no power of hell and no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I stand. Or to invoke the Heidelberg Catechism, joy is the buoyancy of soul produced in the Christian when we know deep down that we are not our own but belong body and soul in life and in death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. It's not that these Easter truths make us happy, although we can experience happiness in our salvation. It is rather that the Holy Spirit applies these truths to our hearts and it gives us this incredible security, this lift, this buoyancy. It produces in us a lightness that enables us to skip and dance and move forward in life with laughter occasionally as we even as we endure the hardship of life in the sad world. We see this in the life of the disciples as they do, uh, do indeed get filled with this joy that is not taken away. No one can steal their joy after meeting the resurrected Jesus. When the disciples were arrested and brought before the authorities, on the way home they rejoiced 
because they were found worthy for suffering for the name of Jesus. And when Paul and Silas were arrested and put in chains, they sang songs of joy, for the joy of the Lord was their strength. This joy could not be taken from them. And so it has been for disciples of Christ down through the ages. I was reminded as I was working on the sermon of Polycarp, uh, one of the early church leaders, maybe a generation or two after the Apostle Paul. He was a leader of the church in Smyrna, and Polycarp was martyred for his faith in Christ. And when the guards came to arrest, to arrest him, he, uh, he was ready, and he showed them hospitality by opening his house and serving them a warm meal. And he asked while they ate if he could have an hour for prayer, which they gave him. Polycarp was then led before the proconsul, who told him to renounce Jesus or die a horrible death, to which Polycarp responded, Eighty-six years I have served him, that's Jesus, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and savior? It's unthinkable for me to repent from what is good and turn to what is evil. But I will be glad, though, to be changed from evil to righteousness. Polycarp's looking for, he doesn't want to die, but he's looking forward to be transformed from the struggle of life and sin into just the righteous life with Christ. Even in the face of death, there was a buoyancy within him. And that is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. And I suppose it's clear now, but I do need to mention it explicitly. It's important to know that Easter joy is not without struggle or sorrow or burdens. In fact, in the Christian life, Joy overlaps with sorrow without being overcome by it. Holy Spirit joy mixed with Holy Spirit sorrow, we see this in the life of Christ himself. Jesus knew how to celebrate. When Zacchaeus came to saving faith, Jesus went to the meal and they had this a big banquet to celebrate God's work in Zacchaeus' life. And even as he carried the cross, he was buoyed says the writer of Hebrews, by the joy set before him. He knew the Father's plan to reconcile people back to God. And with that joy powering him forward, he carried the cross. But Jesus also knew how to cry, and he knew the struggle of life. When Martha and Mary, Mary with Martha and Mary, he wept at Lazarus' grave. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, he went through early labor, the early labor pains of the new creation. The Christian is buoyed up by joy, inexpressible joy. But Jesus also said, blessed are you who mourn, for you will be comforted. In a way, your emotional life becomes way more extreme when you become a Christian. The hope of Easter floods your soul but the reality of sin and death can hit harder too. The Stoics of ancient Greece offered a path to people to help them maximize pleasure and minimize anxiety and sorrow. Epicurus taught people that the path to a sublime, unanxious life was found in living an unattached 
life. Does the, does the news make you anxious? Turn it off. Does sin bother you? Stop going to church and hearing about it. Are you worried about a broken heart? Don't give your heart to anyone. Nothing can hurt you from a distance. But is the detached life worth living? And what does Christ invite us into? He invites us into the attached life, which is filled with joy and sorrow. Addressing this, C.S. Lewis once said, it's a great quote, and he's talking about love, but I think it can be applied to joy too. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything in your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. When we follow Christ as his disciples, we experience the joy of Easter, forgiveness, hope, resurrection, eternal life, our inheritance. Then we also see all the ways the world does not measure up to what is to come. And we experience the sorrow in our own lives. We see it on the news and in the world. And it hurts us all the more deeply because we know what should be. But think how much greater the joy will be when that day comes. Those who know sorrow will know such a greater joy when that day comes. Jesus invites us to an engaged life, a life in which we struggle against the darkness till the break of dawn. Yes, your heart will be broken and the lines of sorrow will grow deep on your faith, but a face, but the truth of the psalmist endures. Weeping may stay for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Avoiding sorrow is not the path to lasting joy. And neither is filling our lives with little luxuries, niceties, or hobbies, as C.S. Lewis said so nicely. Oh, certainly a well-timed glass of wine can lift the spirit. So can a vacation or a fishing trip or a bike ride in the woods. These things are not bad. They can be very good. And sometimes they can give the, us maybe a, a temporary jolt of joy. But they are like candy in comparison to the rich feast that is on offer to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And our souls cannot be buoyed up by counterfeit joy. The real McCoy is found in the blesser, not the blessing. So it's important as we seek to be filled up with joy that we don't go trying to fill it up with things that can't ultimately stay afloat. Anything but God will eventually let us down. 
and sink us. You know, I've been able to visit um, Jerry and Gertie quite a bit over the last uh, month, month and a half. And I know they're probably watching at home, so we're glad you are. And we miss you here, too. And a month ago, it, you know, wasn't sure what would come. And we all thought perhaps that Jerry would die sooner rather than later. But he stabilized and doing well, as, as Maria mentioned. But one of the things I noticed, and this is what I want to share, is that there's a great joy and there's a strong peace in that house. I feel it when I walk in, and I think they feel it too. What is that? What is that joy, that lightness, that buoyancy? It's the joy of the Lord. It's living in the knowledge that death is not the end. It's living in the knowledge of the assurance of faith that the inheritance that is to come is so great and so good. And so we can face death with hope and joy. And may we all be buoyed up with God himself. He alone can fill us with that joy that is deep and wide enough to set a kingdom laughing were it to break forth. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, you know the lines of sorrow that are on our face, the troubles we carry. We pray, Lord, for... Um, deep assurance today that you would inflate our troubled hearts, that you would lift us up, that we might have a lightness to our step and an ability to face trouble with the sure and certain hope of life with you to come. We pray that you continue to provide for Jerry and Gertie and that we pray too now that you would continue to provide for your people here gathered. Holy Spirit, continue to help us to be a people of joy, even in the midst of the struggle. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.